0: Okay, we are holding in Shoftim, and we're by by Tess, by the beginning of the ninth chapter of Shoftim. Um, and tonight, what we're going to be learning has a number of uh, not happy parts of the story, but uh, that's the story. The Tanakh is the way it is. It's not uh, it's not written to make us necessarily happy always. Um, so, whereas till now we were learning also about a lot of periods of idolatry and difficulty, but the Shoftim themselves were all tzaddikim. The shayftim that we learned up until this point, um, of course, Yeshua, Asniel, Ehud, Dvara, Gidon, these are the Shaiftim that we covered until this point, they were all tzaddikim, or in the case of a tzaddikis. But tonight we're going to learn about a few that, were, that weren't that were such, um, and we'll see different degrees of that. but um, And this is more difficult parts of Navi, but it is, it is uh, the Navi as we have it, and we'll learn it the way we have it. Um, specifically the first chapter we're going to talk about tonight, which is Perik Tess, is a very difficult chapter to, uh, to really uh, to handle. It's a very sad chapter. Basically, in the previous Tuproch, we learned about the story of Gidon. And Gidon was this, um, was this great tzaddik who had uh, different, a lot of Ruach HaKodesh and a lot of open Nisim, miracles from Hashem. And he was able to win the battle um, and save Kal Yisrael from their, from their oppressors and um, the afterward, was for 40 years, we read, it was quiet, it was quiet, and it was good. Now, Gideon himself was married to a number of wives. Of course, this was way before the time where the halacha is that a man is only a is, uh, is allowed to be married to one wife. We know in the Chumash, we have Yaakov marrying more than one wife, so even though it still, it seems common practice was typically one husband and one wife. But nevertheless, there definitely was the concept of a person who had more than one wife. And Gideon had more than one wife. And we learned that Gideon actually had 70 sons from his wives. But then it says he had one more son from a Pelegish. A Pilegish is, I think, translated as a concubine. And that is a woman who's also someone's wife, but it's without a k'suva, without kiddushin, designated for that man, but a secondary type, a secondary, a concubine. Again, something that for already a thousand years is forbidden. But then it existed. So he had one son, and this son's name was Avimelech. And this Avimelech was a very wicked man. And after Gidoin, so, so, so this concubine, this Pelegesh, was from the city of Shechem. And after Gidoin passes away, and he passes away at a ripe old age, and he's buried, mm-hmm. so then this Avimelech wants to be the next ruler of, over the Jewish people. He wants to take the place of his father Gidon. The problem is that there's 70 other sons. And he was the least worthy of all of them. Spiritually speaking and leadership quality, he was the least worthy of all of them. And yet, Avimelech is able to plot and is able to get um, assistance from Shem, which is the uh, city and the family of his mother, and is able to become wealthy and is able to gather around him a number of warriors. And he, he sets a whole plot into motion and basically he kills or has killed all of his 70 brothers. So all of Gideon's sons are killed by Avimelech, aside from one, aside from the the youngest one, his name was Yosam, and Yosam is hidden, or hides himself, or is hidden by others, and therefore he is saved. But um, Avimelech, again, whose son number 71, the son from the Pelegesh, the son from the concubine, has all of his brothers, aside from one, killed. And therefore, he assumes the leadership of the Eden at that time. It was a coerced leadership, but he assumes that leadership, at least over that part of Klal Yisrael and Eretz Yisrael, to the degree that he's actually called the seventh Shofet. Again, as as we're going through the Shoftim, we're numbering them one by one, and whereas, as I said, the six the sixth Shoftim that we learned about until this point were all tzaddikim, Avimelech is not. And Avimelech, um, he uh, usurps the leadership, he takes it on his own, It takes it through might and through strength, and he is going to rule over the Jewish people for three years, this Avimelech. Now, the, um, the Pesach tells us of a very interesting and beautiful Marshall, um metaphor that was said by Yosam. Again, Yosam is the one remaining son of Avimelech who was not killed, the young son. And the Pesach says that Yosem goes up onto a tall mountain, Har Grizim, the Mount Grizim. We know about that Mount Grizim, because that was one of the mountains where the Yidin got the brachas. And Yosem goes onto the tall mountain, and he's able to project his voice and talk to the people, to, to the Yidin, specifically the people of Shechem. And it's a lengthy mushal, it's a lengthy metaphor. And basically he talks about, um, it's a metaphor of trees, And again, some of you may remember um, or be familiar with the metaphor. He talks about the trees that were looking for a king. And he says that all the trees came to the Zayas, to the the olive tree. And they asked the Zayas to be their king. But the olive says, I'm busy tending to my olives and so many people appreciate my olives. I can't be the king. So they come to the Te'ina. They come to the fig tree. And they ask the fig tree to be the, their king, and the fig tree also says, I don't want to be a king, I'm busy with my own fruit. And they come to the geffen, they come to the vine, and they ask the vine to be a king, and the vine says, I'm too, I'm too involved in giving forth um, grapes and giving forth wine, which wine is used for so many mitzvahs and so on. And finally, they come to the thorn bush, all the trees, again, this is all the mashal of yosam. The metaphor of Yosem, They come to the thorn bush and they ask the thorn bush, "Do you want to be my, do you want to be our king?" The trees ask the thorn bush, and the thorn bush answers and says, "I'll be your king, but only if you really, truly believe and want me to be your king. Otherwise, may a fire come forth from me and devour all of you." That was the um, the metaphor of Yosem. and what Yosem was really saying. He was giving his rebuke to the Jewish people. He says, instead of going for leadership to all of the sons of Gidon, who were all tzaddikim and all who were worthy sons of Gidon, you didn't accept them as your rulers, and instead you went to the thorn bush, referring to Avimelech, The Avimelech was the wicked son of Gidon who had all the other sons killed. And he says, Yosem says, if indeed you're in truth looking for the proper king, so like in the metaphor, the thorn bush says, if you're in truth accepting as a king so peace be with you he says but that's not the case it's not a, you're not truthfully looking for kingdom and therefore Shalom is not going to come out of this kingdom a fire will come forth and will consume all that all those that were part of this plot in killing all the sons of Gidon and making Avimelech king this was this is again known as the metaphor of yosam son of the remaining son of Gidon the one who was saved so it's really a metaphor and a curse. To, to Avimelech and to all those who made Avimelech king. The mepharshim and there's a lot of mepharshim on this uh, metaphor, which I don't want to get, go into. I want to talk. to say one idea that the mepharshim say that in this metaphor he talks about three special trees. He talks about the olive tree, he talks about the fig tree, and talks about the vine, and how all of them declined when they were asked to be king. So who is he referring to? Rashi says. Rashi says he's referring to three of the previous Shoftim, who were all Tzadikim, who when they were asked to be rulers, they said they don't want to be rulers, because a Tzadik is never looking to rule. And Rashi says that when he talked about the Zayis, he was talking about Asniel ben Kenaz. We learned about Asniel in the past, he was the second of the Shoftim. When he talked about the of the fig tree, he's talking about Devorah, who Devorah also wasn't looking for leadership. Um, she, she had to judge, she was, she was called upon but she wasn't looking for leadership, in fact, if you recall a couple of weeks ago we learned Devarah sent Barak, he said, you lead the battle, I don't have to go and when we talked about the gef and the Vine, he's talking about his father, Gidon that all these Sadiqim, when they were asked to lead and to be shayftim, to be rulers, to be judges, they all, in humility were looking not to accept leadership and that's what Yosem was really saying. He was saying a true leader in Torah is not someone who's looking for leadership and is any sense of arrogance. And all of that he was contrasting with Avimelech, who was the first of the shoiftim, who not only uh, looked for it, but uh, paid for it and uh, killed for it because he was looking for that leadership. Anyway, all of this is in the beginning of Perek Tess, again where Avimelech, again that, that son of, that son of um, Gidon kills all of his brothers, and becomes the shofar to the Jewish people. But ultimately, and, he, and then we have the metaphor, and then the curse of Yosem. <clears throat> and then ultimately, in the uh, in the continuation of the Perak, that curse comes to fruition, because Avimelech's leadership is very short-lived. Um, the people of Shechem begin a revolt against Avimelech. And it's a, it's a long story in, uh, of, of a very, um, a very uh, terrible battle. Uh, you had a guy named Gaal, who seems to be a non-Jewish person who was who came in to lead the revolt against Avimelech, and he had a person named Zvul, who was Avimelech's um, uh, the one who he left in the city of Shechem as his appointed leader, and there was a again a very very um, blood bloody war between Avimelech and ultimately Avimelech kills very many people in this conquest where he's trying to crush the rebellion against him. Ultimately, as a lot of the people in our are gathered in one building and Avimelech is coming to try to destroy the building, there's a woman who throws a, a huge stone, a grinding stone, over the wall of the building and it hits Avimelech and he kills him. Well, actually, it, it almost kills him. It makes him uh, deathly ill and he asks his men to kill him. He says, I want to be killed by you, so it shouldn't be said that I died at the hands of a woman on the battlefield. But this was the end of Avimelech and that was the end of a three-year, very bloody rule of Avimelech, again, that son of Gidon who came from the, from a concubine and he was, again, the most vicious of the shoiftim that we had um, who killed all of his brothers and really this was the end of the um, lineage of Gidon. Although there's one, one son, there's the Yosam was the remaining son, but mo- the, the, the vast majority were killed out and Avimelech himself died in battle as well. That is the story of chapter 9, which is sort of an epilogue after after the story of Gidon, where his, uh, again, his family splits up as, or is killed, and Avimelech himself is ultimately killed as well. That leads us to chapter 10, Perek Yud. In chapter 10, to Perek Yud, in the beginning of the Perek, we learn about two more shoftim, who we know very little about, and in their time was a time of peace. You know, it's, uh, we we concentrate more on the times of wars and difficulties because that's what there's more to talk about. But there were extend there was extended periods of peace and, and good and prosperity in Eretz Yisrael. And here in the beginning of chapter Yud, we learn about the um, the next shofet, which is the eighth of the shoftim, and that is Tola ben Puah. Again, not a, not a very known name because we don't know very much about him at all. He was from the tribe of Yisachar, from the Shevet of Yisachar. We know traditionally Yisachar was a tribe of scholars um, of Talmid um, typically Chachamim, typically in the Sanhedrin, you had many people from Yisachar, all the way back to Birchas Yaakov when Yaakov gives blessings to the children he talks about Yisachar as being the ones who devoted themselves to the study of Torah. So even though the Shevet of Levi was more the teachers as far as the Kohanim and the Leviim and spiritual people, but Yisachar was a shevet of Talmud HaChacham, typically speaking. And here we have a nasi, or a, or a shevet, from the shevet of Yisachar. Again, he's the eighth shevet. His name is Teulah ben Pua. It says that he ruled, or he judged, for 23 years. And in his time was a time of quiet and a time of serenity, a time when, by and large, the Jewish people served Hashem. And it was a, it was a, it was a pretty good time, um, especially in compared to the, a lot of the other happenings that we're learning about. Rabbi Salarur? Yes. Can I ask a question? Um, So, when you say that it was like a time of peace and there were a lot of Yidin serving Hashem, and we were back to the last Shefet, which I forgot now which one, and the war, and when the army came, when he had his army come, and it decreased in size and decreased in size because it was only the people who were truly serving Hashem, right? So, then after that, like, how did the Yidin bounce back? If it was at a time when the majority of Yidin, at that point, I think it was the last shape that we discussed. You talk, you're talking about, about gidon. Yeah. Right. Yeah, okay. Giden. Okay. Right. So, so how did it bounce back and forth like that, where there were so many Gideon not serving Hashem, and then they came back to serve Hashem? Was it as, as the after the war was won? Right. Right. Um, it's a good question, and I can't say I know the answer with clarity, um, but. It would seem, as we're going through Shaiftim, through that entire era, which is a couple of hundred years long, um, that there was a tremendous amount of back and forth. You have to remember, all this while, the Mishkan is standing in Shilo. So we have here an active Mishkan, we have and we have Karbanos, so we're not talking about a lack of knowledge, um, or, or lack of ability, at least, to find out the truth, and there were always Sadiqim amongst them. Um, Pinchas is always somewhere in the background, so, and you know, Eretz Yisrael is a big land at, at this point, there is no one centralized leadership to Klal Yisrael there is no Melech so really it's like it for it. each one is in their own section of Eretz Yisrael and everyone is just, it's, it's, a, it's a time that's hard for us to relate to it's, Klal Yisrael is pretty fresh as a nation right, you know, they're, you know they, were, they came out of Mishraim, they, they were 40 years in the desert now they're new in a land um, and again, there is a Mishkan there's always teachers but there's a lot of idolatry that they never really get rid of. You have to remember that they were idolatrous in Mitzrayim. And then, you know, 40 years in the desert, 40 years doesn't change a nation and uh, and a way of thinking and a way of being. So throughout this time, they're really, you know, they're bouncing up and down. That's, uh, that's what we see here and now exactly what sets it off and why mostly what we see is that when bad stuff happen, and when things are, uh, when they see that Hashem's protection is removed from them, and when there's a tsara, so they do tshuva, but those tshuvas don't seem to be long-lived. It lasts for a tzaddik, and lasts for another tzaddik, and then there's a lot of recession, back-to-back back ways, bad ways, and then it's back up. Um, I'm not sure if I answered your, your question adequately, but that's what it seems that we're learning here. A lot of back-and-forth, and a lot of up-and-down, um, and no real consistency. No real, no real consistency, and if you think historically, I'm not sure that that so much changed. I mean, there's the ups and downs of Klal Yisrael, and there's Sadiqim and there's whatever. That's the way. That's the way. Definitely the way throughout. Specifically through the book of Shoftim, but even later, when Mir we will get to the time of the Beis Amikdash, also a lot of a lot of idolatry, a lot of idolatry, and a lot of ruchnius, and um, a lot of Sadiqim and a lot of rishonim. That's just the, seems to be the story, the the, the ongoing story here. Okay, uh, let's. Okay, I hope that that's uh, accepted. Yes, thank you. Okay, sure. Okay, further in Perek Yud. So we learned about the first Shaifat in Perek Yud was Taylor ben Pua, who is the eighth Shaifat. Then we have another Shaifat, very similar, that we know very little about, and that's the ninth Shaifat. His name was Yair Hagil Odi. Yahir from Gilad. Um, And the the Navi says again, just a few words, a pasik or two, or maybe three. It says that he judged for 22 years and um also seems like a serene time seems like a good time it said he had many sons and um, and they were very very prosperous caliusro seems to be prosperous again another good period of time for 22 years so following the the uh, one before 23 years we're talking about over 50 years of basic you know no big wars and no big suppression and the the, the plus expends very few psukim just telling us about judge number eight, Tola ben Pua, judge number nine, Yoyer Hagiladi. There's actually a question if Yoyer Hagiladi is from Menashe, which seems to be the more prevailing opinion, or is from the Shevet Yehuda. Um, either way, that is, that's the next uh, Navi. And then is where things recede again, and they recede pretty negatively, and the Pasuk talks about how Klal again, idolatry becomes a very powerful factor. And they, after the passing of this Yoyer HaGiladi, they fall under the the rule of the Plishtim, the Philistines, and the uh, descendants of Ammon. And the Plishtim and the descendants of Ammon um, suppressed the Jewish people very, very severely in that time. Um, It's for a number of years. And Kal Yisrael at some point cries out to Hashem, and it says Hashem responds to them through a Navi. It doesn't say who the Navi was, it doesn't say which Navi. And that Navi gave them Musr, and he rebukes them, and he says, you're calling out to me again and again and again? He says, call out to the the idols, call out to your deities that you serve. And the Jewish people accept the Musr, and says that they remove all the idols from amongst them, and they call out to Hashem again. And as the uh, chapter, this is chapter uh, Yud, is finishing up, so we have that, it says that the, uh, the armies of Ammon are encamped in camp in, in Gilad to wage battle against the Jewish people, and the Jewish people are encamped in a uh, in a neighboring uh, battlefield in Mitzpah, It says, and it's at this point that they realize that they're very very in very grave danger, and they don't have a real shevet, they don't have a real leader to lead them. They realize that they have a big battle ahead of them, and the, um, the they're outnumbered, and the people of Ammon are very powerful, and the Sarei Gilad, the, uh, the ministers of Gilad are looking at each other and saying, who's going to lead us to battle? Who's going to lead? Who's, uh, who can we appoint as a new Shofet um, to lead us into battle? Whoever that will be, will be our head, will be our Rosh. That's how chapter Yud finishes. So chapter, chapter 10 finishes where, again, there's like this uh, war brewing between the Jewish people who did tshuva to a degree. doesn't say a perfect tshuva, but there was some level of tshuva, and they're looking for some level of leadership to wage battle against their oppressors who are the descendants of Ammon. And that's where chapter 11 begins. In chapter 11, we're going to learn about one of the very interesting shoftim. Um, interesting in a sense... Um, that there's a lot of debate about his about what type of a person he really was, and that's Yiftach. Uh, Yiftach is the tenth Shofet of the Jewish people, um, and a pretty one that an entire, an entire the entire following entire chapter is devoted to him, and his is a famous story, um, and again one that cre- really has a lot of different interpretation um, and mifarshim about how to see him. Um, it is written about Yiftach that he was the least righteous amongst the shayftim. In other words, he came from the least least righteous background, and he himself wasn't considered um, of the level of the tzaddikim that we read about, um, uh, barring Avimelech. Avimelech, who we just read about, who's a rasha. Avimelech, the son of Gidon, who was a murderer in Russia. But aside from him, all the shayftim, as you said, were tzaddikim. Yiftach, as we'll see, had Ruach HaKodesh, Hashem spoke with him, and he led the Jewish people in some miraculous ways, and yet a number of the things that he did are very, very um, criticized by the Mepharshim, by the great Mepharshim. And that's the story of Yiftach. We actually read the story of Yiftach, or part of it, as a Haftorah of one of the Parshiyas of the week, uh, of uh, one of the Shabbos of the year. Um, As you know, every Shabbos, after the reading of the Torah, we read a section of the Nevi'im, most of them is from the later Neveim. But the parasha, the story of Yiftach is read in the Haftarah of Parshas Chukas. Um, and as we go through the story, I'll explain to you why it's read in Parshas Chukas. Okay, so what's the story of Yiftach? So, the the, the chapter, chapter 11 of Shaiftim opens up. And as I told you at the end of chapter 10, the Jewish people are really encamped um, and ready to go to battle. They're looking for a leader. So, the, the Pasik starts telling us that in the Shevet of Menasheh, there was a Gibor Chayil, which was a really a warrior. He was a valiant warrior, and one who was known as a warrior, and his name was Yiftach. And it says that he was Ben Isha Zona. And the Mepharshim have a number of explanations, or a number of opinions, what that means. Um, was it literally that his mother was a harlot, a zayna, a prostitute? That's one Pyrrhus. Um, Others say that she was a pilegesh, like we learned before about a concubine. And others say that she wasn't either, but she was just a woman who was from a different Shevet. Which means, interestingly, in Menasheh, specifically in the tribe of Menasheh, typically the women of Menasheh married within the tribe of Menasheh. And that goes back to the Chumash, where you had the daughters of Tzavchot, who were Tzadekisan, and they inherited, and, and Moshe Rabbeinah said they should marry their own tribe, their own Shevet. So either way, the mother of this Yiftach was a secondary wife, secondary woman, to to his father. Now, so what happens is that this uh, Yiftach, who's the um, this Yiftach, his brothers threw him out of the house, basically. Because they said you're from a secondary woman, you're not from our tribe, or you're a pilaqa from a daughter, of a son of a pilaqa, or a daughter of a zoina, whatever it is. So the brothers basically he left. They threw him out and he left, and he left his home and he lived somewhere. It says the Tov in a city called Tov, good, and gathered around him a bunch of strong. He was a warrior and he led a band of people. Now you have the people of the Jewish people, specifically in Gilad who are facing the great battle against the Ammonim. And they said, who's going to lead us in battle against these people of Ammon? So they said, you know what? What about Yiftach? There's that Yiftach who we, who we really sent him out. We kicked him out. But nevertheless, he's a warrior and we need a warrior now. So it says that the Zikne Gilad, that the elders of Gilod, went, to, went down to Yiftach. They found him, they visited him. And they said, we need you. We need you to come and lead us in battle against the Bnei Amon. And uh, Yiftach says, what do you mean? You kicked me out. You sent me away from my home. Why now, when you need me, are you calling me to come back? And they said, you're right. You're right. We kicked you out, and uh, we're sorry. And the the passage doesn't go into detail. But it says, one thing we can tell you, if you come back with us, And if Hashem works through you, and if you lead us um, in battle against the people, against the the nation of Amon, we will make you a leader over us. So Yiftach agrees, and Yiftach comes back, and then the Pesach says, then he starts talking very, very, even though Yiftach again wasn't known as a tzaddik, but he starts talking um, very spiritual types of uh, words. he says, I'm reading from the Pasuk, Yiftach comes back and he starts talking to Hashem and he tells Hashem that I've been asked by the Jewish people to lead them. He says, I might be not worthy on my own but for the sake of the Jewish people he asks for Hashem's protection, Hashem's bracha to lead Klal Yisrael. And then the Pasuk says that Yiftach goes ahead, he assumes the leadership role and he assumes the commander of the Jewish forces And he sends a, um, he sends shluchim, he sends emissaries to the king of Ammon. And again, this is all what we read in the Haftarah and Parshas Chukas, which is typically, it's actually the week of Gimel Tammuz, usually in the summer. So Yiftach tells the king of Ammon, and he says, why are you starting up with the Jewish people? What did we do to you? Why are you starting up with us? Why are you going to war with us? And the king of Ammon sends back messengers and he says, because you took my land. He says, this was my land, Eretz Yisrael, was my land before you came. And now the Jewish people came to the land of Israel and they conquered Israel. I'm just taking back my own land. And Yiftach responds. And he gives a very, a very beautiful response. And he goes back the history of when Meshur Rabbeinu led the Jewish people to Eretz Yisrael. And he and he says it, very very interesting. He really goes through what happened in the Torah portions, and really he's talking about the Torah portion of Chukas, which is why we read this as a haftorah of that parsha, because the haftorah is always uh, connected with the parsha that we read on Shabbos. And he says that when Moshe Rabbeinu led the Jewish people out of Mitzrayim, after the forty years in the desert, they had to come into Eretz Yisrael. When he tried to come into Eretz Yisrael, he asked for three countries for permission to, pla- to pass through their lands. And all of those three countries did not allow them to pass through the lands. Which three countries did Moshe Rabbeinu ask permission to pass through? Edom, Ammon, and Moab. All of those three nations, Moshe Rabbeinu asked them for permission that the Jewish people should pass through their lands to come into Eretz Yisrael, And all of those nations refused. And instead of waging any battle with them, the Jewish people Surrounded those countries, surrounded those nations, and did not battle them. And the reason that they didn't, is because Hashem told them that they can't. Because the lands of Edom, Ammon, and Moab were untouchable to the Jewish people. You'll recall, Edom, Ammon, and Moab are all related to us. Because Edom comes from Esav. Ammon and Moab are the two sons of Lot. And therefore Hashem said that Edom and we should not wage battle with. So when they did not allow us or when they did not when they did not allow Moshe Rabbeinu to have the Jewish people cross through their lands, Moshe Rabbeinu and the Jewish people surrounded their lands, went around them. How did what happened at the end? At the end, we came to the land of the Amorim, and there you had the king was Sichon, and there again Moshe Rabbeinu asked Sichon Malach Amori, can we go through your lands? And Sihon was the one who began a battle against the Jewish people. And Sichon was conquered by the Jewish people. And that's how he came into Eretz Israel. So Yiftach sends this message this message to the king of Ammon. He says, we never took any land from the Ammonim. It's not true. He says, For, to the contrary, we did not go through Ammon. And we did not go through Edom or Moab. What we did conquer was the lands of Sihon, who he began the battle with us. Now, Sihon had conquered lands from Ammon or from Moab, but we, Klael Yisrael, says Yiftach, never fought with Amon or Moab. And, and Yiftach goes on and says, HaTov Tov Atom Mi Balak, are you better than Balak, um, king of Moab? The balak, king of Moab, he didn't wage battle with us, because he knew we didn't wage battle with him. And then he finishes off and says, And if you really have a complaint against the Jewish people, where have you been for the last 300 years? Yiftach tells the king of Ammon, we're here in Eretz Yisrael already for 300 years. Now you reminded yourself that we took your land from the fact that you didn't do anything for 300 years, your, your nation, is because we never took anything from you. Which, by the way, if we take a break for a moment... The fact that he said that it's been 300 years that they've been in Israel gives us a historical backdrop to where we're holding exactly. We're 300 years into the era of the Shoftim, which is pretty good because I think that means I think we're on our third year of Shoftim and we cover 300 years, right? But how do we have just just very quickly? And I know we're not doing math here, but it just because the Mefarshim point out, how do we get to 300? how do we get to 300 years? So I'm just going to run through the math very quickly here if you're writing numbers. And that is, Yehoshua led the Jewish people for 28 years. Okay, so we have 28. After Yehoshua, we had the second Shofet, which was Asniel, ben Kenaz. He led the Jewish people for 40 years. So what do we have? 28 and 40 is uh, 68. Then we have Ehud, ben Gera. He led the Jewish people for 80 years. So where are we? What do we have? I don't, I don't have all the numbers written down here. Yeah, we had 28, 148. 68. Are we 148? Okay. okay. 148. Good. Devorah, another 40 years, is 188. Right? Gidon, another 40 years. So 188 plus 40 is what? Is 228, right? 228. Um, Avi Melech, Gidon son, three years. That's 231. Tola Ben Pua, 23 years. Is that 254, I think? Yair, the last one, was 22 years. Is that 276, I believe? 276. Then we have the 18 years of the, um, of the servitude under Bnei Amon, which brings us to 294, and then six years of Yiftach, 300 years. So this is, Rashi points this out, they run through quickly the numbers over here, why Yiftach tells um, the king of Ammon that it's been 300 years. And that's and that's uh, that's what Yiftach tells the king of Ammon. So again, it's a long dialogue back and forth, but Yiftach basically is telling the king of Ammon, why are you starting up with the Jewish people? And um, after Yiftach finishes his whole dialogue, so the king of Ammon doesn't listen, doesn't listen, doesn't even respond, doesn't respond. He sends his uh, soldiers into battle, um, and Yiftach goes out to battle, and Yiftach goes out to battle, and he's out, he's out to battle with his people to battle the king of Ammon. And here's we have, again, one of the famous and sad stories of Tanakh, because Yiftach has out to battle, and he makes his neder, the famous neder, the uh, oath of Yiftach where he says, and Yiftach is, you you have to remember, Yiftach is not really known as a tzaddik, and he's really a warrior more than anything else, but now he was called on to uh, serve Klal Yisrael, and therefore he did take on a level of service for Klal Yisrael, and he did, but on the way out to battle, he wants to do something special, something holy, something spiritual, and he he announces in front of everyone that the um, the first thing that comes out of my house when I come back from battle, if I'm victorious, is for Hashem. Now he was thinking an animal. That's what he was thinking. He was thinking to bring a carbon for Hashem. But he makes this open-ended nether, this open-ended uh, oath. Whatever comes out of my house first, that's going to be a carbon for Hashem. And he goes into b- battle and he is very successful in battle. Um, Hashem is with him and he's able to um, totally uh, uh, rescue Klal Yisrael from the, from the nation of and He's able to um, really destroy them in battle. And he comes back all excited and he's coming home. And of course, who comes out to greet him? Famously, his daughter. And his daughter comes out with actually with musical with musical instruments, so excited for the great Nitzachin, the great um, uh, victory that her father just had in battle. And he's crushed. Yiftach is crushed. Here he just made an oath in front of all of the uh, soldiers, in front of everyone, that the first thing that comes out of my hand is being separated only for Hashem, a carpenter Hashem. Again, in his mind, he was thinking an animal. It's interesting, Chazal say, that there were three people who made such a neder, and for two of them it worked and one it didn't. Who are the two other people in Tanakh that made a neder not knowing what's going to be? Very famously, Eliezer. Eliezer said, whoever comes out and offers water for me and my camels is going to be the wife for Yitzchak. Now, he didn't know who's going to come. This could have ended really badly. Right? Someone may have, you know, Some gypsy may have walked out and offered him water. So, Gemara says, Eliezer made that neder, but it ended up good. Um, the other one who made such a nether is Shaul HaMelech. Shaul HaMelech says, whoever is going to kill um, um, Goliath is going to have my daughter as a husband. Now, How did he know who's going to come? Could have been anyone. And it was David HaMelech. So that, so Gemara says, three made such a nether, for two Hashem reckoned with them and sent them the right person, and for Yiftach it didn't work out well. So Yiftach's daughter walks out, and Yiftach is stunned, and he's crushed, he starts crying, doesn't know what to do, and his daughter, who it seems was a special woman, says, "Listen, she made a neder. Whatever you said for Hashem, that's what should be. That's what should be." She says, "Give me two months. I want to go to be with my friends for two months, and then do what you have to do." And then it comes back, and the pasuk doesn't say exactly what happened. It's, and this is where we have the two in the mafarshim. There's two ways. There are those that say that she was killed, in some some level of karban. But Rashi, most mafarshim say that she was just separated. She lived herself a life of um, of his of um, she was a little alone and she was just davin and served Hashem in a uh, secluded, in a life of seclusion. In fact, the next pasuk seems to support that because it says that four days a year, all of the the women would go out to her. So those who say that she died say that they went out to mourn her. Um, the Mufarsham that say that she lived a life of seclusion say they they went out to be with her for four days a year. But either, either way, the Mepharshim um, very much criticized Yiftach in this entire story. And not just Yiftach is criticized, it's interesting. There was still a big Tzadik who lived far away in Eretz Israel, and that's Pinchas. And the Gemara criticizes Pinchas. He said Pinchas should have come, and he should have found a way to be matir neder, to annul any such o, any such vow. And therefore, the Gemara says that Pinchas lost his Ruach HaKodesh after that story. And that Yiftah himself died a very difficult, a very painful death. And that's all the, the, uh, the uh, criticism of this story of the neder of Yiftach at the end of his life. So the story of Yiftach is a mixed story. You know, it's a, it's a story, on the one hand, he's a person who acted for Klal Yisrael, saved them from their oppressors, talked with Ruach HaKodesh. Um, Hashem had him lead Klal Yisrael. At the other hand, he wasn't a, a tzaddik of the same stature as the other shoiftim, and therefore there was this terrible mistake at the end of his life, which led to, again, either the death of a daughter or the seclusion of a daughter, um, and that is the end of Perik Yud Aleph, um, the story of Yiftach the Shofit, who was, as I said, the eleventh, the tenth. I'm sorry, the tenth Shephat of Klal Yisrael, who did serve Klal Yisrael, um, but nevertheless, there is, has been has criticized in various different things that he did. And that's the end did of. Did Yiftach died? You said he died a horrible death. How did he die? It's. it's it doesn't say. The Pasik just says. Well, the pas says that he was buried in the cities of Gilad. So the gemara says, "How do you buried in cities? You should be buried in one place." So it says that he that he lost different limbs in the end of his life, and therefore they were buried in different places. So that was seen as a punishment for this story. Um, and that's the story of Yiftach and again, I, I repeat that we read that in the Haftarah, in Shul on Parsha's Kukas, because of its relationship with the Parsha, of the story of um, where Moshe Rabbeinu surrounded the cities of, um, of Ammon and Moab and Edom, which is discussed in that week's Parsha um, I want to very quickly just take a moment and tell you what it talks about in Yud Yudbe's chapter 12, um, because it's a, it's a very short, it's a short chapter, um, and just a, a couple quick points um, first of all, that it, there was a bit of a civil war that broke out after that amongst the Jewish people. And that is, sadly, between Ephraim and Menasheh, which really, of course, come from two brothers um, from the tribe of Yosef. But it seems that Ephraim was very hurt that they were not called to this battle against Ammon, which Yiftach led. Yiftach is from Menasheh. And he led the battle against Ammon. And the people of Ephraim were very insulted or hurt. And they came and they waged battle against Menasheh. And many people from Ephraim were killed in that battle between Ephraim and Manasseh. That's the first, that's the one part of chapter 12. And then in chapter 12, we read about three more shoftim. which again, just a few psukim for each one, doesn't say much about them at all. It just tells us that they were. And I just want to give you their names. We'll conclude with that for now. Um, it says that the 11th shofet was a man named Ivtsan. And he was a shofet for seven years. Now, Most most people don't know about Ivtsam, but most people know who he is because he had another name, not mentioned here. And that is Boaz. Ivtsam says the Gemara is Boaz. Boaz, of course, is going to reappear in the story of Rus. Boaz is the man who Rus is going to marry, and they're going to give birth ultimately to the grandfather of David HaMalach. But here, there's no mention of that. It just says that the next Shofet was Iftzon, and again, it reverted to a quiet time, and he was the Shofet for seven years. Um, according to al he himself was a tremendous Tzadik. He was a Tzadik, he was a shofate, and ultimately, as we said, he married Rus. Um, and if we get to the story of Rus, we'll talk about him then. Here he's just mentioned as the 11th Shofet of Klal Yisrael, and he led them for seven years. Followed by another Shofet whose very little is known about him, and his name was Elon from Zvulun. Elon has Zvuloni, Elon from the tribe of Zvulun, and it says he, he he judged the Jewish people for 10 years. And finally, in this chapter, we have the 13th Shofet, and he was Avdon ben Hillel. Avdon ben Hillel, Hapar Asoni, which I guess is a city where he, come, where he came from, and he judged and led the Jewish people for 8 years. And that is the 13th Shevet of Klal Yisrael. With that, we finish chapter twelve. Um, that's the that's the end there. And chapter thirteen, the next few chapters, are devoted to the next shevet, a very famous shevet, and a very famous story. And that's the story of Shimshon Hagibor, who is the next uh, going to be the next great shevet of Klal Yisrael. And we will do that in Mirza Hashem um, in future shiurim.